Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello, and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Eunice. Thanks for joining us. And we are originally releasing this show on Thanksgiving, so we want to say Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Yeah, so I'm wearing my pumpkin pie shirt because it looks like pumpkin pie. I'm wearing the shirt on which I will spill gravy tomorrow. So, so oh, did I already, already start no, spilling? No, I didn't spill. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have uh, Thanksgiving coming up, and we're just going to have a small, a small one, just Toby and I, with uh, a little bit of turkey and cranberry sauce and that sort of thing. Uh, we're looking forward to next year in South Carolina being with many, many kids and family members and uh, having a grand old time, grandparent old time. It should be uh, it should be a lot of fun. Yeah. So this week we're reading from A Gypsy's Kiss, A Treasure Hunt Adventure, and we're going to be diving into Chapter 35, Headed Home, and Chapter 36, The Train Conductor. If you remember from last week, uh, Miguel was uh, dealing with the police he was in the holding cell. He went to see the, uh, he was inter well, interrogated. We call it interrogated. He just answered a few questions with Detective Lacoste. And then he uh, also went to see uh, DA Jim Garrison and have a conversation about what to do next. And uh, together they came up with the, uh, the solution that Miguel should go home. It was, he'd had his adventure at Mardi Gras. And he had a good time. He figured out that there was some some bad parts of the world that he just wasn't ready to handle on his own yet. So he thought maybe he should go home and, uh, you know, reset. Well, we have an interesting coincidence today. What's that? It's November 22nd, the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas. And, of course, it was Jim Garrison who made his fame. After uh, after this or before this? 62, yeah, after this. Um, for having prosecuted several people that he believed were part of the big conspiracy in the assassination. assassination and it eventually ended up in a book. I can't remember who wrote it. I think it's Mario Puzo. And then in a movie called JFK. Yeah. It was this. That's the same Jim Garrison. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? So you met him when uh, you were just a 15-year-old oh, so, tyke. So this would have been, what did we say, 1963? Four. 64. So this was after the assassination. After. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was probably before he started his investigation, because I don't think he started his investigation until almost a year and a half later. Yeah. It would take some time. So uh, let's get into Chapter 35, Headed Home. The next morning, after finishing with my breakfast tray, the original holding officer retrieves me and gives me the opportunity to take a shower. 
But this time, instead of handing me jail clothing, he hands me my own washed and pressed clothes, including my leather jacket. They're all stacked on top of my leather satchel. I'm happy and comforted to have my own clothes back, and I begin to taste a little freedom as I donned them. I'm still wearing the slip-on shoes provided by the jail, though, since my boots are now at the bottom of the Mississippi. The holding officer brings me back to the front desk, this time governed over by a different sergeant. He says to the sergeant, he's ready to go. He looks at me saying, take care, son, before walking away. The sergeant, a roundish, chatty man who reminds me of Brother William, points to a chair alongside the desk and against the wall. Sit down, he instructs. We'll be with you in just a second. Several minutes tick by before he finishes his conversations with officers that are standing around his desk. He answers a couple of phone calls and pounds a handful of folders against the desk to even them up before putting them in a wire basket on the edge of the desk that's marked file. He motions me to his desk, so I get up and stand there while he presents me with a handful of tickets. He says, we're sending you home on the train. It will take three days total, but you stay on the train, understand? Also, here are some meal vouchers. There are nine of them. Enough for three meals a day for three days. Yes, thank you, I reply as I take the tickets and vouchers. My officers will drive you to the train station and stay with you until you board. I'm going to give you a few dollars. You can use if you need to buy something. But we've taken care of all your meals as long as you stay on the train. Very slowly, he reiterates, do you understand? Yes, I do. He sits up taller, looks around the room, and at the clock on the wall saying, All right, you've got a few more minutes until you leave. Go ahead and take a seat while we wait for my officers to come for you. A few minutes later, Officer O'Flaherty and Officer Avery, who had brought me into the police station, walk into the room telling the desk sergeant, Ready for the kids, Sarge. He's all set, right over there. He motions toward me with his head. They look over the top of the desk put on their hats, and Officer O'Flaherty says, All right, kid, let's go. I follow them to a car parked in front of the building. The ride to the train station is very short. At the train station, they park in the space marked Official Use Only, very close to the front door. When they let me out of the car, Officer O'Flaherty asks, You got a bag or something? No, sir, this is it. I pat my satchel slung over my shoulder. Okay, let's go find your train. Once inside the station, there is a large board with a list of all the arriving and departing trains. Officer Avery asks to see my ticket book, and when I hand it to him, he correlates the information on the first ticket with the information on the board. When he works it out, he looks left down the train station, then turns to the right and points the ticket book down the long hall, saying, You're down there. We walk less than 100 feet to an area marked Track 8. There are other people in the area patiently awaiting the announcement of the train's departure. The officers and I find three adjoining seats and sit down while the other passengers stare in wonder or concern. I try to look as innocent as I can. Not that I've done anything wrong, but I don't want the other passengers to think they're boarding the train with some sort of criminal. We wait a while, and over the speaker we finally hear, Southwestern Limited, now boarding on track 8. Departing for Lafayette and locations west. That's the Southwestern Limited, now boarding on track eight, bound for Lafayette. All aboard. I stand up and get in line while the officers wait nearby. I say to them, 
You don't have to wait if you don't want to. I'm okay. Officer O'Flaherty replies, We've got orders, kid. We stay with you until you're on the train. The line goes through the open door, and each of us in our turn steps up onto the train. As I reach the top step, I turn and wave the equivalent of thank you. They wave back. I walk back to the first car after the dining car that seems mostly empty, choose a seat, and sit down, pushing the seat back as far as I can, and close my eyes. I try to figure out what I'm feeling. Fear? Loss? Excitement? Dread? Longing? Resentment? I can't put my finger on one. Maybe it's all of them. The train lurching forward 15 minutes later ends the mental turmoil. Chapter 36, The Train Conductor. The train travels slowly through New Orleans until it reaches the city limits. Then it opens up and increases its speed. Soon after we clear New Orleans, a black man with short white hair wearing a navy blue conductor's uniform and cap appears. He moves down the aisle in my direction and stops at each seat containing a passenger. Passengers present their book of tickets to him. He takes the top one off, puts a hole in it with his hand punch, and returns the ticket book to the passenger. Since there are not many people in the car in which I am riding, he soon reaches my seat. I hand him my ticket book. He takes the first one, punches it, and then looks through the other tickets in the packet. You're going to be with us for a while, he says in a clear baritone. All the way home, I reply. You started in New Orleans. Visiting family? No, sir. I went to see Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras, he repeats with a laugh. That's a big affair. Who'd you come with? No one. I rode all by myself. Rode? On the train? No, on my motorcycle. Oh, quite the adventurer. I did something like that when I was your age. Not on a motorcycle, though. Couldn't afford that. Mostly I hitchhiked. Sometimes I'd hop on a freight train and go as far as I could. Where were you heading? I ask. I wanted to get out of the South. I was going to Chicago. That was a dream of mine. Seeing, listening to, and learning the blues and jazz in Chicago. And maybe becoming a musician myself. You had family there? No, I just wanted to get as far away from Georgia as I could afford and start the rest of my life someplace else. How did it go? Well, not like I planned. I met a young woman. She was beautiful and she was my inspiration. She encouraged me to finish high school and get a job with the railroad. Then I helped to raise our children. She was a good and loving woman and turned me off the path I was on and onto a better one. Enjoying his story, I realize I'm glad to have his companionship after all that time alone in a cell. I add to the conversation. My father used to tell me, one day you'll meet a woman who will turn you into the man you're supposed to be, and you should be grateful when she does. He laughs, reminiscing. Yeah, that was her all right. And I am grateful for the 35 years we spent together. Spent, I ask. Yes, he answers. She's not with us anymore but not a day goes by that I don't think about her. And you, he asks, what about you? I guess it sounds silly now, but I had planned that as soon as I finished seeing Mardi Gras, I was going to continue riding east until I got to the ocean. Then I was going to ride north all the way to Alaska to pan for gold. After that, I was going to ride home again with enough gold in hand to be able to do anything I wanted. That's a heck of a dream, 
he says with a friendly pat on my shoulder. Would you take some advice from an old man who was sitting in exactly the same seat you're sitting in right now? If I had it to do all over again, before I did a hundred feet worth of traveling, I would finish my education. Now, you know, back in my day, that meant a high school diploma. But these days, you need college as well. You seem like a bright young man to me. I have no idea why you decided to run off, but do your future self a favor. Or do it for that woman you're going to meet one day who will make you into the man that your daddy hoped you would be. Finish your schooling. Then you can really go wherever you want to go. See the world and do it all. I shake his hand and thank him. I tell him how much I appreciate his advice. He responds, Oh, we're not done yet. You and I are going to be good friends by the time this trip of yours is over. I laugh at the way he says that. He knows where I'm going and how long I'll be on this train. He offers, What else can I do for you? I could use something to read to pass the time. Toward the back of the next car, he points, there's a bathroom with a shower, and across the aisle from that is what we like to call the library. It has a couple of small shelves full of paperback books and another shelf with magazines. The only thing I ask is that you return them when you're done. Thank you, I nod. I will. He continues on to the end of the car in which I'm riding and on to the next. I follow a few minutes later into the next car and down to its end. I check out the bathroom and then the library. I withdraw a paperback novel written by Jack Kerouac about his travels with his friends all around America. It's not the first of his books that I've read, nor will it be the last. But this one, On the Road, becomes my favorite. I return to my seat and begin reading. After a few dozen pages, I feel drowsy, push the seat back to its reclining position and doze off while thinking of Mariah and wondering if she is thinking of me too. The remainder of this trip consists of a series of repeating events, staring out the window, reading, napping, and going to the dining car ahead for each of my meals. Once in a while I get up, go to the library, and pick out a magazine to go through, rather than reading the book. We make several stops, and sometimes I get off and look around the train station, buy a soda or a candy bar, and return to the train in my seat when boarding is announced over the public address system. We mostly travel a route along the Gulf Coast from Louisiana to Texas. There are times when the Gulf of Mexico, with all its boating, fishing, and other industrial activity, is in view. I often break the monotony of the train ride and get a little exercise by walking all the way forward to the locomotive and then as far back as the caboose and back to my seat. During these bouts of exercise, I discovered there are a variety of cars, including private rooms, sleeping quarters, dining, and one car seemingly dedicated to drinking. Occasionally, I exchange glances with another passenger, sometimes a smile, and a few words about riding on the train. But mostly, I keep to myself, though I can always count on a visit from our conductor. After each stop, Mr. Kudrow takes and punches the ticket for the next segment of my ride. The three days do not pass as quickly, or as slowly, as I want them to, depending on my state of mind at any given moment. Frequently, I consider the whereabouts of the BSA. What happened to the cash tucked away in the secret compartment above the oil tank? And what Uncle Carlos will say and do when I show up without her? I also wonder if I'll be kicked out of St. Michael's for running off. 
When I left, I hadn't thought about what might happen if I came back. I was all set to keep on writing. Lastly, I think about my mother, and if, like Lizette, she is worried and praying for my safe return. But then I think, no, she never worried when I went out on my own before, so why would she start now? Why would she start now? I don't know. <laughs> Had your dad been around and she found out you were off in Louisiana, she probably would have sent him after you. Uh, oops. <clears throat> probably. Yeah. That is very likely. Yeah. So uh, I don't know why why you would think that. But I guess we get into that funk when we're teenagers. Oh, nobody cares about mm. me. I have to take care of myself. Yeah. Mama. <laughs> there was a lot of that as a foundation for the rebelliousness I was pretending to be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, nobody cares about Trying me anyway. Trying to get anyway. Yeah, mm -hmm. like all teenagers. Yeah. I think so. we talked about that one other time, going mm -hmm. from seeking attention to being helpful and, mm -hmm. and having a purpose in life. Mm -hmm. Or giving yourself a purpose in life. Yeah. And deciding on a purpose in life as opposed to just moaning your way through it. Yeah. So how would you feel about three days on a train heading home? Well, of course, like all things in life, the three days were uh, infinitely longer than I expected them to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a year later, of course, they were inf infinitely shorter than I imagined them to be, yeah. you know. Well, I would, I would think, yeah, it's a long time on a train, but gosh, it's a whole lot easier than riding that motorcycle that far. Oh yeah, no, I mean it was relatively painless. Yeah. Um, the uh, you, I, I didn't have a sleeping car. A sleeping, you know, I wasn't in a right. sleeping car. I had to sleep sitting up. But there mm -hmm. were pillows and there were blankets, and um, I did. I never took a full shower. I did kind of a sponge bath over the three days, uh, but I stayed stayed clean. I yeah. wasn't growing a beard at the time, so yeah, uh, I was shaving and. Like exercising that um, much, going and walking back and forth and, on the train. And Mr. Kudrow found me a, a toothbrush and some toothpaste. So um, it wasn't difficult at all. And there were other people who were taking the same journey. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the journey from New Orleans back to Santa Fe and, and probably even further north because that train went on to Denver and, and parts west from mm -hmm. there. So, uh, so it wasn't, you know, like me rolling around in the middle of a one of those... You know, it's not an old timey train like freight, car. Freight car. Yeah, yeah. By this time, <laughs> by this time, you know, trains had been refined enough so that it was a smooth and relatively quiet ride mm -hmm. with great scenery. Uh, there was one car that had the double decker, um, so you could go up this the scenic car. I, I can't remember the name of it, mm -hmm. but you could go up a level mm -hmm. and you could see the scenery through a, a, at a much higher angle. Mm. So I didn't have a camera with me, uh, unfortunately, but it would have been the kind of thing that I was distracted by the scenery and mm -hmm. people. Uh, I don't think, um, I'm, well, no, it's not that I don't think, I'm certain that I was not as social then as I am now. That comes with the experience of being social. But uh, it gave me the opportunity for a lot of people watching. And uh, I used to walk through the cars because you had to walk through a variety of cars. You'd walk through the sleeping cars and the uh, the dining car, and I could eat in the dining car. They they took my uh, my what do you call them? Uh, vouchers. Chips, vouchers there. Uh, there was a drinking car. It was obviously a bar. Mm -hmm. um, and every time I went through it, the bartender would give me like the look, like yeah, just keep moving along or something. You know. Didn't say anything, but uh, yeah. that's what I planned. But I got a kick out of it. And there were people in there just having a good time. 
And that was back when you smoked, you could smoke as much as you want in public. Mm -hmm. And so it was like walking through a bar, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so if I needed, there, there was the the, ex, the motion, uh, the exercise of motion, just mm -hmm. kind of going back and forth. I didn't know anything about Einstein's theory of relativity, but later I learned that Einstein used traveling on a train as a description of um, of relativity and uh, how time lapses. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was interesting. I didn't know anything about it then. I think uh, Kevin and I, we rode the train quite a bit when we were in um, Europe for three weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that was in 1986, uh, over the summer. And yeah, we, there were some cars that were like the, they had the compartments where you, like you probably uh -huh. maybe saw it on Harry Potter, you go in and then you can sit down and look at e each other and, you know, talk to people, you know, but other people could come in too. If uh -huh. they, you know, they, just the two of us sitting on one side and somebody else could come in on the other. And, uh, they also had what they called a wagon, which was the the recliners that uh -huh. you could sit down and and recline and um, you know just just a bunch of seats like kind of more like an airplane seating arrangement. But I remember one time we uh, obviously Kevin and I are both of German descent, so uh -huh. uh, we looked German anyway. And then we didn't dress like Americans. Uh -huh. and we carried our backpacks everywhere instead of luggage. So. Um, and oh, one like time Euro travelers. we were in one of those compartments sitting there, you know, together and the train stopped and then uh, more people got on. And this one woman got on with a big dog. It was like a kind of a German shepherd mix uh -huh. dog, good sized dog. And I remember that they took their dogs everywhere and they were well-behaved animals because uh -huh. they went out all the time. They uh -huh. were, they went everywhere. So they had to be well-behaved, you know, and she had him, uh, go sit underneath the seat uh, that she was sitting in and she sat down and the whole time she came in, she started talking to us in German, in German. not knowing we were Americans and she's, well, you know, talking and talking and talking and telling the dog and then she sits down and then she asks a question and Kevin had had um, German in high school. So he'd had, you know, a year plus a little bit more than a year. Uh -huh. Um, uh, of German. So he's like, uh, you know, Langzama bitte, or, you know, uh, something about English bitte, you know, <laughs> and she's like, Oh, you speak English. And then she started switched over to English with a British accent, um, which a lot of people there who uh -huh. travel a lot have a British accent if they you, speak You can English. count on Europeans to speak English, generally. Yeah. Speak. And she's like, oh, you speak English. You know, oh, you're Americans. Oh, okay. And <laughs> but she was very friendly. And it was it was a good good experience. But the funny thing is we had year rail passes, which were good for three weeks. And we thought, well, we, we don't need to get hotel rooms so much because we'll just ride the train at, you know, overnight, overnight. we'll sleep in the compartment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and then get up the next day and see the place where we are. We tried that. <laughs> we got so tired because the, the conductor kept coming, coming in by. to see our IDs, to see our tickets and waking us up. And it was like, it's yeah, like being in a hospital. It was, it was, yeah. And then the next day we got onto the wagon car and sat down and reclined and we both went right to sleep. We're like, yeah, we can't, we can't do this again. We have to get a hotel. <laughs> 
So that was my train riding experience. That's what sounds like a great experience. Yeah. Especially well, in the nice thing is the trains went everywhere. You know, you could get to this very small towns. And then once you were in a small town, you could pretty much walk if you needed to. One time we ended up in a small town. We were looking for a dress shop, that a place that made uh, German clothing, you know, like the, the traditional mm-hmm. <clears throat> dirndls. And we had looked up in the guidebook where to go, and it was this small town, and I'm not quite sure how to say it. I believe it was Aichach, A-I-C-H-A-C-H, something like that. Very small town. We got off on the tr- got off the train, and it was ra- kind of raining. It was raining. We went over to the wall of the train station where they always would have a map of the town under glass so you could look at it and kind of decide, okay, here's where we are, mm-hmm. here's where we need to go, here's how we get there. And these two women, moms, have been dropping off their uh, young tween teens on the train, and they saw us, and uh, they came over to us, and she started, and she didn't speak very good English because they were in a small town. Now, in the big cities, obviously, they speak a lot Mm -hmm. of English because they interact with a lot of English speakers, but in the smaller towns, not as much. So she was like, "Where? What are you trying to find?" And so Kevin would show her, you know, the address, and here's where we're look. What this dress shop that we're looking for, and um, the two friends were like, "Okay, we know where that is, and we'll take you there." Um, but I think they're on lunch right now, so uh, we'll take you there. And we're like, "Oh no, just sh-, you know." And she's like, "No, no, no. You get in the one car, and I got in the other car with these moms, and they took us where we needed to go." and yeah, <laughs> this is this is how they are. They're like, you know, you don't know. Obviously, you don't know where you're, what you're doing, or where you're going. So we're going to take you there. We're going to take care of you because you know that's just the way they are. Uh, they're not very demonstrative people. They're not very, you know, showing a lot of hugging and kissing kind of things. But they are very hospitable people. You mm-hmm. know, they feel it's their duty their to help people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we found that a lot. But that was our, you know, train riding experience. Once the girls started in college, when they started traveling during the summers, they'd go off to these summer courses. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why they had to be in Morocco or, you, you know, but they'd go and they'd say, Dad, I don't speak Spanish or I don't speak French. So I, I used to tell them there's only one phrase you need to learn in that language. And the phrase is that language is equivalent of, I'm sorry, I don't speak that language do you have anyone who speaks English? And what you're going to discover is that in all the places that you're going to be going to, for the most part, they all speak English. And, and it's for the re- most part, they want to use their English. That's right. That's right. So uh, so they do that. And what I do is I'd go to Google, go to Google Translate if I didn't know which, you know, uh, what, where was Erica at that time? She was on some island in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And I found out they spoke a dialect of uh, Greek. Mm-hmm. And so I got that equivalent of Greek and senator and you know how you can do with Google Translate, you can mm-hmm. even sound it out. And it worked perfectly for them. They never had trouble. They always just do that. Oh, so they nice. were terrible at languages. You'd think they could they learn Spanish. They all took, you know, Growing Spanish up in, in high such school. A diverse area. Well, in such a di- not only a diverse area, but they went they they went to a good high school. They had three years of language. They all mm-hmm. chose Spanish because they figured their dad could help them. And I don't think any of them. I think Toby learned more Spanish as a result of uh, having to use it. Having to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she's getting bit. Well, she started using it 
uh, when she worked as a salesperson for that um, catering company in Washington right. mm -hmm. because all the employees were Spanish speaking. Mm -hmm. So she had to learn it to communicate with them. Yeah. If you uh, don't use it, you'd lose it. You'd lose and, it. You'd, and you don't really ever use it enough in cl in class right. to be able to feel confident right. speaking it. So um, I don't think to this day any of them can speak Spanish without making me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they didn't grow up around it. Like, no. you know, I grew up in Arizona, so I heard Spanish all the time. Mm -hmm. So I understood how you – and then I understood – the the pronunciation of the words mm -hmm. you know i didn't know all the all the spanish but i at least had learned uh the numbers mm -hmm. before i was in high school you know i knew all the the numbers in spanish and you know just this and that not much because it was just you know it was we were it wasn't encouraged that much to speak a second language because you know but when we got to high school, I took Spanish, and it was fairly easy because I had this Spanish around me all the time. So you kind of you you hear it, and you know, well, it's not Mogollon Rim; it's uh -huh. Magellan Rim. You know, right. you know, you just hear the names spoken out loud, so uh -huh. you know how to say them. Well, there was a uh, a uh, disagreement between the gener my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation. My mother's generation didn't want us to speak Spanish because you're an American. Right. You don't need to speak Spanish. Right. My grandmother's generation, on the other hand, would say it's part of your heritage and you learn. My grandmother would only speak Spanish to me. Mm -hmm. She would not speak English. And when I could, I'd respond in Spanish. When I couldn't, I'd respond in English and she'd give me this <laughs> side eye, you know. Um but yeah, so I took Spanish in high school, but I learned a lot of colloquial Spanish just hanging yeah. around with my with my aunts, uncles, and grandparents. My grandmother, of course, was Spanish. My dad spoke pretty good Spanish mm -hmm. for uh, somebody that that wasn't, you know, well, I guess he was naturally born Spanish, but I mean, half Spanish. Um, so I went to college, and I thought, well, I don't need to. I took uh, so my first year, I took Russian. And then I started it, I went to Russian too in my second year, and I realized, okay, this is going to get really hard. You get know, really hard? I would have it, thought it, it, was it was hard no, to begin with. Once you learn the alphabet, it all makes sense. Yeah. Because um, that was a nice thing about Spanish and, uh, you know, language like that. You didn't have all those extra letter, weird letters or uh, the umlauts or whatever. Well, <laughs> that was languages. nothing compared to language school at Monterey for Vietnamese, yeah. North Vietnamese, no uh -huh. less. Um, so I switched back to Spanish and uh, I was getting constantly corrected because my Spanish was colloquial. Mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. say, I didn't say casado. I would say casao, yeah. which was the colloquial Spanish. And so she'd correct me all the time. So, but I survived. I survived. So let's talk a little about some of the themes and um, <clears throat> emotions contained in those chapters. We have freedom and redemption. Miguel, Miguel's experience in jail, sorry, in, yeah, in jail, in holding, and the subsequent journey back home symbolize a quest for freedom and redemption. In fact, I have redemption as the title on the mm -hmm. thumbnail. The change from the confines of the holding cell to the open space of a train reflects his personal growth and the opportunity for a fresh start. So although the train was small and you had, you know, you could only stay in that one aisle, at least it was bigger than a holding cell. It was much bigger than a holding cell because you could travel, like, like I said, from one end of the train to the other mm -hmm. <clears throat> and experience a certain amount of uh, social interaction. And it was really up to, excuse me, 
And it was really up to me because people saw me as a child, you know, that I was treated like a, like a, a, not, not even a teenager, just a child. I was young. I was not that I was diminutive. And so there was a lot of smiling and um, waving things like that. Uh, the women were, especially women on the train were especially uh, social, like, Oh, how are you today? They, they would work to start the conversation and try to make you comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel at all alone. Um, a few uh, who were on the same uh, trek that I was, I got to know by name and could greet them or I'd see them in the, I, uh, by the second morning I was sitting with someone at the breakfast table, you know, at, uh, I didn't, I didn't eat all my meals because they were big meals. Mm -hmm. You know, they were full size meals. Excuse me. Is that water? Thank you. So um, I didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of the meals. I didn't. I certainly didn't have all nine. But the um, dining car was very social. You could you could sit with other people, or they'd invite you. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there was a couple of families, small families, uh, husbands and wives. You know, mm -hmm. so it was uh, it was very comfortable, very. You know, there was nothing that that mm -hmm. uh, was upsetting about that particular trip. And, of course, yeah. Mr. Kudrow, um, I could ask him any question, and he'd have an answer. Well, it kind of reminds me of when we went on a cruise. You had an assigned table for dinner, mm -hmm. so you got to know those people. But the other meals, you could, you could just sit anywhere, mm -hmm. and you could sit with people at a long table mm -hmm. and get to know other people that way, or you could be off by yourself if mm -hmm. that's what you wanted. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would have never then at, at that age imagined walking up to a table and introducing myself and asking to sit down. But now as I'm older and I get that opportunity at conventions and things like that, mm -hmm. it is in my nature now not to go off in the corner at a table alone, but to find the the table that has um, you know, more people and a couple of open seats. For me, that's that's now easy to just to sit down and introduce myself. Mm -hmm. That that comes with time, you mm -hmm. know. Interesting. Journey and transition. The physical journey Miguel embarks on mirrors his emotional and mental journey. The train ride becomes a metaphor for life's journey, complete with encounters, reflections, and anticipation of what lies ahead. So this is finishing up the hero's journey. He had this mission, this thing, this calling, you know, I guess you call it mm -hmm. most of the time it's called that in the, in the hero's journey explanation, it's the calling because they refuse the call and then they go on the call, you know, mm -hmm. they get, they go. Uh, so the calling was Mardi Gras calling to you. And then you got there and you had your fun and you met people and you did your thing. And now it's time to go home and pay the piper basically. Uh, <coughs> you know, you're going to mom and, the teachers and the uncle Carlos and all these people. And you got to pay the piper for, you know, you did, you did the, the fun stuff. Now you got to pay for, mm -hmm. pay, pay the, the piper, as they say. That's why you have the boon. That's what gives you the boon, gives you the opportunity for distraction. Like, Oh, I know you're mad, but look what I brought you, you uh -huh. know? Um, and the other thing that you learned about the hero's journey is that uh, in the hero's journey, there are normally three acts. And in those three acts, there's 10 segments that's divided into segments. Each act is a miniature 
uh, hero's journey. Each segment is a miniature hero's journey, and that's how they describe it. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end in each one of the segments. But I wanted to point out, so you hear us talking about the hero's journey a lot, and I mention a couple of uh, authors uh, when I do. So this is Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero of the uh, Thousand Faces. This was republished in 2004. It was actually written originally uh, the same year I was born, 1949. And uh, it's divided into three segments. There's a prologue, then there's a description of the hero's journey, and there's a cosmographic, as he calls it. I, I think he made up the word, but there's a cosmographic uh, description of the hero's journey and how, how it all comes together for individuals. It is not an easy read. It is very dense uh, because that's the way Campbell writes. Uh, but if you want to completely understand the hero's journey and anything that was written after that about the hero's journey, because this is considered the basis for a lot of the filmmaking uh, that we see nowadays, uh, the Star Wars, for example, any of the Star Wars films are all literally written uh, on uh, with this as a basis. Um, so, if, but if you really want to understand it without having to go to a class on it, this is the book that you uh, want to get here, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Now, there are two others that I would strongly recommend if you didn't want the density of Campbell's book. Um, this has over time be become my favorite. And this was written by a gentleman whose name is Christopher Vogler. He was neither an author nor a um, sociologist. He was a script reader. It's and it's called The Writer's Journey. The Writer's Journey. And um, he was a script reader for one of the large production companies, the Hollywood production companies. And his job was to read scripts and determine whether or not they had production potential. And this is not a high-end job. I mean, this was a low-end job where you sorted literally through the hundreds of scripts. You'd read the first three or four pages and you'd decide, Can I re should I read more? And the ratio between scanning the first three pages and reading more was one to 100, literally. But it, they could tell. And then he would take that, that uh, one out of 100, and he would take it up to the producer's level, and he would pitch it to them, saying to them, you've got to, you should make this movie, or, you know, it, by the time it got to 100, it was never a, you shouldn't make this movie. The ones that they shouldn't make are all in somebody's trash can by this point. But uh, after reading all of these scripts, he realized that the best scripts, the ones that intrigued him enough to make a pitch to the producers, uh, had some uh, very much things in common. Then he read uh, Joseph Campbell, and then he wrote this book. And it's much more focused on just the hero's journey uh, uh, from storytelling perspective, the storytelling of, of a script. So it's very easy to get through, and um, it does a complete explanation, not only the hero, but the archetypes, and the journey as it takes. He, he describes it in a spiral, if I remember correctly. Let me see if I can find it real quick. So this is, that's his version right there of the hero's journey. And in his case, it has 12s. 12, the ordinary world is number one, and the return with the elixir is what he calls it, as opposed to the boon. Um, but it's divided into three acts in those 12 segments, and uh, that makes the best movies. And if you don't believe me, watch any Star Wars epic or um, almost any other movie that makes it to the theaters nowadays, 
uh, are based on that story. Another one that I thought was really good and is an even easier read. Now, it is very much oriented towards someone who's writing a script. This is based on the reading of scripts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to write the script. It doesn't even have, uh, well, it does have examples of scripts in it, but it uses the scripts to say, here's an example of how that segment looks in a movie. Uh, Sid Field uh, in um, his screenplay, The Foundations of Screenwriting, is uh, a book that you would use if you were actually planning to write a script. And as you can see in here, he uses a lot of examples of scripts from uh, popular mo movies. This one is um, this one, uh, with Giddis, what's his name? Chinatown, which he considers. So there are several in there that he considers examples of this uh, screenwriting genre that would be uh, successful. So those are three books that you can look at if you can find them. Um, and read through, I'd say this is the easiest reading. This is a little bit more intellectual, but also easy reading. This is uh, dense with intellectualism, as I guess is the only way I can describe it. But if you get through this, you really understand how the hero's journey is not only constructed, but how it fits into uh, the uh, our um, anthropology, on the, in the anthropology of the human being um because that's what what campbell did for us so all right wow <laughs> everything you ever wanted to know about uh, the hero's journey and then some next uh, we have connection and mentorship mr kudrow's role as a friendly train conductor serves as a mentorship moment for miguel the advice about education and the sharing of life stories highlight the importance of connections and guidance in one's journey so a hero's journey is ultimately a teaching tool mm -hmm. that we can learn along with the character because the character goes through a change uh, usually uh, up leveling in his life going from uh, angsty whiny teenage boy to uh, you know a polished as we said a more polished version of himself uh, understanding more about the world uh, not whining so much because he sees that he's got it pretty good compared to a lot of people he's met. Um, grateful to the people he met along the way, his men, the mentors that he met, the people who helped him, uh, the people who taught him uh, uh, lessons about life and about himself and about his relationships with other people. So uh, there's a lot going on with this uh trip back on the train is kind of a transition moment to go from I've had my fun now let's coalesce all of this these things that I've learned at, and see how that I can implement them in my own life and I think all of us do that when we've had an experience that's changed us we need some time to think through it uh, post-mortem when they call it or a debrief or but you're doing that on your own where you're just thinking about all the things you've gone through and how does that affect me and how can that inform my relationships with the people in my life Shelly makes an interesting point, and that is the hero's journey is always in the context of the world around him uh, there are no vacuums 
in the hero's journey. There is not just the hero existing in some kind of vacuous world where no one else exists. Shelley mentions the mentor, and I'm going to go back to uh, Vogler's book, uh, part book one, Mapping the Journey. He describes what the archetypes are, and the archetypes are the types of individuals that you're going to meet along the journey, and they include the hero, a mentor, as uh, Mr. Kudrow was, the threshold guardian, as Jim Garrison was, the herald, the shapeshifter, the shadow, and the trickster. And all of those characters appear in this book in various forms, and they do in any story that make up the hero's journey, because as I said, the hero is never in a vacuum. Uh, if it is, it's the story starts getting really boring really quick. He's got to have people around him in order to make the story interesting. And lastly on here is loss and uncertainty. <clears throat> Miguel's concern about his uncle's motorcycle and the unanswered questions about Mariah introduce themes of loss and uncertainty. These elements add depth to the narrative, creating suspense and emotional engagement for the readers. And my niece, Daniela, read this book, and that was something that she told me was she felt a lot of tension about what's he going to do? Where's the motorcycle? How, what's he going to do when he sees his uncle and he doesn't have it? And how's that going to turn out? You know, that really provided some tension for her and, and a reason to keep reading. There's uh, two things that I get when people have read the book and they want to talk about it. One is I was happy to see that the motorcycle worked out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't do that. But, um, that was the first thing. But the other thing that always mentions was, did you ever go back? Mm. Did you ever go back to find Lisette or did you ever go back to find Mariah? I think leaving that behind because there's so many people that you, that are involved in this. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess the answer to that is the hero's journey doesn't end at the end of this hero's journey. There's another. So there could be another story that would be the return. For example, um, I might have found myself after having returned uh, from Vietnam going back to visit Lisette so that we could have some sort of closure with all that. Um, but that's another journey. So uh, if you look at these storylines along the way, that there is not always resolution with the relationships that you have along the way. Uh, it was interesting to me that we based uh, the story of the... Um, um, Ranger and his wife on people that I actually knew much later in life. And, um, but I could do that because that was the culmination of that story. I, I was aware of how that fit in to uh, the rest of my life. So it's not always necessary for complete resolution. The resolution is the difference between the beginning of the hero's story and the end of the hero's story. And there's a lot more room for developing resolution of other stories along the way. For example, could there be a script uh, about having served in Vietnam with all these close ca calls with the objective of getting back, returning, not because it would make my mother happy, but maybe it would make Lisette feel about better about herself. So there may be a completely different story in there, another journey, one for me, one for her, and it might even be her story, right? You could write a story that starts with uh, her journey after, say, the day, that begins the day after she has this encounter with this young boy. 
uh, who does, who she doesn't know anything about and who doesn't know what his future is like. And it ends with the return of that boy to meet with her. I mean, you could tell a whole story like that. And the resolution is the return of the young boy to visit with her, showing her that, look, people do come home from Vietnam. And, and then after that, there's an even longer and better story that results as res of them enhancing their relationship. So that's how thing these things go. They don't always get resolved. I don't know what happened to Mr. Kudrow. I don't know what happened to Mariah. I don't know what happened to Lisette. Uh, but you could write another story. You could, but I'm like... Why? I don't get it. See, to me, I'm like, okay, you had a good moment with this person. You spent one night uh, with Lisette and one night with the ranger and his wife, mm -hmm. and then uh, one night with Mariah, mm -hmm. and then you went home. Mm -hmm. And one night out of your entire life, you spent with one person. Does Why do you go back? You know, I mean, yes, you go back and see your uncle. He's part of your family. Mm -hmm. Yes, you had girlfriends and stuff that you'd go back and see uh, in later years. Mm -hmm. But they were a girlfriend that you saw many, many, many times. Mm -hmm. Not one evening, one night. Uh, you know, yeah, you went through a lot with Mariah. But it was one night. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she went through a lot. Most nights, you know, she had a, a lot going on in her life. Um, so, it, you know, you could have gone back and they were, would go, uh, who are you? I don't remember mm -hmm. you, you know, because it was one night. The point that I'm making is that you're absolutely right. There's no way I can disagree with that. The, you're In terms of conceptually, you're absolutely correct. It was one night in my life. The point that I'm trying to make is that Mariah has her own journey. Sure. And that I was part of it for one night. One night. Right. And, and maybe the rest of her story began uh, after she gets off the, the top of that mausoleum and goes to face whatever she has to face in order to move forward along her story. The same with Lisette. So uh, what, what you imagine is that each of us has some little bit of impact on anyone who we've had the equivalent, and I'm going to use this cautiously, of a one-night stand, mm -hmm. right? I had a one-night stand with uh, uh, the, um, what's it called, the, uh, the the ranger and his wife. I had a one-night stand encounter. with Mariah. Encounter. Okay, encounter. let's kind of encounter. Instead of I had an encounter. <laughs> I had a, an encounter with Mariah, and I had an encounter with Lisette. Mm -hmm. I had an encounter with a sheriff. And uh, in storytelling, the the story from that point is their story, not mine. And I may yeah. appear in it later on and return, but that's not my story. You're the hero that's, of your story. They're right. The hero they're the hero. They're the heroes or heroines of their story. Well, I, there's a book called Dying to Be Me, and in there, the, this woman died and came back, mm -hmm. and she talked about when she was dead. Uh, for the time that she was on the other side, she saw this big, huge, beautiful tapestry. Uh -huh. And the threads then, you know, were woven through and how some threads are, you know, they bump up against other threads and then they go off in another direction. That would be the night that you spent with these people. Uh -huh. um, others are, you know, intertwined or woven together. That would be, you know, your family members. Uh, they're always going to be part of your life. You're going to be a part of their life, you know. Um, so you Yes, we do encounter these people, but we aren't meant to, you know, wrap each other up 
a lot of times we're meant to just bump up against each other and then bounce off and go in another direction, which is what this was about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I was writing Mariah's story, it would start with the bedroom scene, jumping into the river, stopping there, and then doing the starting the backstory. Right. Um, uh, with uh, So each of them, like you say, they have their own thread and we encounter one another along the way. And then the threads uh, in a, in a neuromatic way go off in their own respective directions. Which I found that really interesting because it's like the, the, the three fates weave the threads mm -hmm. of life together and one cuts the threads and yeah, all of that. That's interesting, right? It's like somebody else must have come back from the dead and told the story. Oh, you, you had to at some point in order to make it a foundation for whatever you were writing. Yeah. Well, I think um, we're going to leave it at that. Reflection and regret. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't really think you had much in the way of regret uh, other than that bumping up against people. You always kind of wonder, you know, what if it had lasted longer? What if I'd run off with her or, you know, what if, what if, what if, um, that's what regrets are. I think a lot mm -hmm. of times we look in our past and we're like, Oh, well maybe if I'd have done it differently, but then I always like, I was taught through my life coach training that, um, everything happened exactly as it was supposed to happen. How do you know? Because that's the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And that big tapestry is you know, we only have one thread. Mm -hmm. We are not the whole thing. We are one thread in that big tapestry. So sometimes we don't understand why things happen the way they happen. You know, um, why did my husband die when he's only 61? You know, why did you meet and fall in love and get married when you were 20 and have, a, you know, a couple of babies? Uh, why didn't you wait longer? Why didn't, you know, why, why, why? We don't know. Mm -hmm. That is the way it happened because that's the way it was supposed to happen. And then you've done your part of the tapestry. And when your time is up, you know, they cut the thread and you move on to the next. I think what I learned in a psychology 101 class is that uh, everyone has regrets. Mm -hmm. You just don't allow the regrets to dominate the remainder of your life because then you never move on from that regret. You're stuck in it. And, um, are, are there times that I wish things had turned out differently in life? Absolutely. Um, are there times where I wish I had been a better man in the, whatever situation it was? Absolutely. But if you focus on that as the center of the rest of your life, you're never going to be able to move on. Yeah, you got to look at and say, that happened for a reason. Uh -huh. What can I learn from it? Because every everything is has the ability to be a learning experience mm -hmm. for you. What can I take out of that, that, that informs me, that makes me, that can make me better. Mm -hmm. What can I do in the future that would be better than that choice that I made there that I, you know, I don't have good, good feelings about it, even though, you know, I, I, maybe I learned a lot, but it, you know, it made me who I am. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened in my life up to this point, Maybe who I am now. And I happen to have a person in my life who you know, um, and their expectation is that I should feel more regret about the things in my life. And they don't quite understand why I don't. 
to them, it makes me kind of robotic. Well, it doesn't serve anybody to it, have regrets. That's, that's the whole point. Yeah. The whole point is who's going to help. As long as you've taken the lesson out of it and become, you know, done your best to become the best uh -huh. you can be. Uh -huh. But we have to remember that everybody does the best that they can at that time with the tools and information that they have. If you are, a, you know, just a weak person and you didn't have uh, much support growing up and you're just kind of lost and you make some poor choices, you still did the best that you could with the tools and information uh -huh. that you had at the time. Maybe you look back and you regret it, but, you know, you shouldn't regret it because you did the best that you knew how to do. Uh, the, the uh, I don't know whether it was a philosopher, um, but the saying is something like, you have to live with your choices, whether they were good or bad, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you can spend the rest of your life focusing on one or the other. Can you choose to focus on your bad choices? Yeah, you can. And it's going to mess you up for the rest of your life because you'll continue to make bad choices as part of that. The, the idea is that if you get the opportunity to make a choice, make the best one that you can. Mm -hmm. If you make a bad one, live with a hangover and then go on with life. Well, you know, and yeah, I think that's a perception thing. Was it a bad choice or was it something that was part of your journey that you needed to do in order to learn that lesson in order to get to this particular point in your life here? You know, people did some really what you would maybe think is bad stuff, and then they turn their life around, and now they're helping other people not do those same bad uh -huh. things. If they'd never done that bad thing in the first place, uh -huh. they wouldn't be there helping other people. So, you know, it's all a perception thing. Uh, to me, a bad choice, a very bad choice results in injury or death to you or someone else. Mm. Other than that, you should be able to live with it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun for us. I hope it was fun for you as well. We do again once, uh, want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back again next week with the next chapter, and we'll find out what happens to Miguel uh, as he rides that train back to Santa Fe. Or actually, Lamy. Lamy, yeah, you don't get back to Santa Fe. All right, so good night. Thank you for being here, and we appreciate you. And uh, happy holidays. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters.